This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Dr. William Smith, a Baha'i and Executive Director of the Center for Diversity in the Communication Industries at Emerson College. In this interview, I barely scratched the surface of Dr. Smith's life. In one hour, we covered the very interesting story of how he ran into the Baha'i faith in high school while living in a very rough neighborhood. I'll invite Dr. Smith back to talk about his many accomplishments, including founding a video, film, and multimedia company called Comtel Productions, founding a non-profit organization called Pupil of the Eye, Vision for Unity in Education, and writing and producing the award-winning documentary film The Invisible Soldiers, Unheard Voices, which aired on PBS, and many, many other endeavors. I started the interview by asking Dr. Smith to describe where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, and... uh... I grew up, I was born in 46, so that was a little bit of time ago, and I lived in Greenville up until I went to high school, and I left there for college and did not return to live there again, though I visited and still do, well, less frequently now, but more frequently earlier. I grew up in uh, the, seg- the era of diehard segregation in South Carolina. The community, generally speaking, uh, was uh, segregated. At the same time, the uh, African-American black or black community, of which I was a part, was a very rich and and thriving community. And and, uh, I think if there was, is a characteristic that I would use to describe my early childhood, I would probably say love my family, uh, my grandmother, my grandfather, my mother, my aunts were all very loving. My mother and father uh, divorced when I was two, so I never really knew my birth father. I met him later in life, uh, and my mother remarried when I was about 12, so... For 10 years, I grew up with my grandmother, grandfather, mother, aunt. We lived in a community where, as many communities were in those days, your family, your immediate family, were all within three or four houses Mm -hmm. of one another. And uh, that was uh, sort of uh, actually the pattern of the community, people's aunts, aunts, uncles, cousins, in many uh, situations were close proximity. I was the fourth of five children. There was a long delay 
before my younger brother was born because he was born to my mother and my stepfather. And um, I'm 13 years older than he is. Mm. But I, um, growing up, had a great time as a kid, principally because though we were poor, we were rich with with a lot of love in my family. And um, so that made what were really, if you took a long view of it, a harsh existence in terms of things that segregation deprived us of and that racism deprived us of. Those deprivations were cushioned by a really wonderful, strong, and loving family. Did you have any relationship with the white community as you were growing up? Uh, No, there was no (laughs) connection with the white community other than, of course, venturing out and going into the various businesses and things like that where whites, of course, for the most part, dominated and and ran and public services, the buses and all those types of things. And, of course, the uh, insurance man, the guy who sold insurance who would come and collect the quarter every Saturday for the insurance policy for my family, uh, he was uh, white and actually... I was I was afraid of white people mm-hmm. when I was real young, principally mm-hmm. not because of what they would do to me or had done to black people. I was aware of that, but frankly, they were just strange-looking people, man. So <laughs> I just sort of, when the insurance guy would come, I would make sure that I was not around because <laughs> he was just a bizarre-looking person to me. Right. There was actually, though, there was one exception to any contact with whites. And interestingly, it was my first contact or even hearing of of the Baha'i faith when I was a a small, a young boy. Uh, I mean, by young, I I do mean four, five, six years old. Mm -hmm. There was this lady who I came to know actually later after joining the Baha'i faith, uh, whose name was Juni Faley. And uh, Junie had moved down to Greenville from Michigan, her and her husband. She was uh, married to a, uh Iranian gentleman, a Persian gentleman who was a Baha'i. They were Baha'is, and they had moved to Greenville. And Junie would come to the church that I attended, which was uh, a large Baptist church, Springville Baptist Church. And, and she would come... About once a month, and usually it was on the same Sunday. I think it was the second Sunday she would come, and it was uh, an oddity and a novelty to to particularly us as young kids. She would come, and every Sunday that she would attend, the the minister would say, uh, "Do we have?" They would have what's called, and they still do this as a part of the the Baptist tradition. Uh, there's a point in the service where you have the announcements about church and then you have the followed by the recognition of visitors and so during the announcements and recognition of visitors the pastor or associate pastor whoever was conducting that part of the service would say if we have any visitors um, would you stand and be greeted and every sunday that she would come you know once a month roughly uh, she'd stand and say 
Hi, my name is Junie Faley. I'm a Baha'i. We believe in the oneness of the human family, and I came to worship with you this Sunday. And then she'd sit down. That That's was, sweet. That, that was her line. She she, she didn't deviate from that. <laughs> and uh, we came to expect it, and it was because there was no social uh, interaction between blacks and whites in that era. And we came to start calling it White Lady Sunday. I mean, because <laughs> oh, it's White Lady Sunday. There she is. So up until um, I was in high school, senior in high school, did I ever have any contact with whites. And, and that first contact, incidentally, was in a Baha'i setting in Greenville, going attending a Baha'i meeting where the folk were... Uh, there were whites and blacks, and which is one of the first things that got my attention. Uh, this is in 1964. And how old? No, actually, it was in 63. The first behind public talk or fireside gathering that I went to. Now, you were in high school. Yeah, I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And what what were the circumstances? Well, before we do that, I, I'm kind of curious. Was there like a social hour in the church after the church service where Junie would? No, uh, church would. Church would end and, uh, at twelve thirty, mm-hmm. and people would pull out into the sidewalk. There'd be brief chatter, and everybody was footing it home quickly to get that dinner. Man. Yeah, you get hungry yeah. by twelve thirty. That's right. You'd be ready to <laughs> rock and roll. You know. So uh, yeah. yeah, but it was really interesting because uh, actually Junie had a, a whole other thing going on. Uh, she was making friendships. The the, the first. Baha'i fires that I went to and was very reluctant for a lot of reasons. What were the circumstances, Smitty, that you even ran into the faith later on in high school? And Well, it was, it was interesting. I had a classmate, Ricky Abercrombie, and Ricky became a Baha'i. Ricky, I grew up in a, while my immediate family uh, was full of love and, and, and uh, we just, it was is great. I grew up in a community that was extremely rough. I mean, it was a rough community, and um, there are all kinds of socio-analysis that could be given to all the violence, particularly black-on-black violence in the community. But it was a, it was a rough community. And um, Ricky Abercrombie, who was a classmate of mine, he lived in another part of town that was equally rough and, and uh, he came from a large family there were eight kids eight Abercrombie kids and uh, I think Rick was about fourth or fifth in the in the in the order but Rick had a, a reputation as being a wild and crazy guy I mean we should do <laughs> all kinds of stuff and um, consume great quantities of uh, alcohol homebrew and, and bootleg <laughs> and, and um, a lot of things, and, and so <clears throat> Ricky, who says they had a reputation for just a lot of not-so-good stuff, mm-hmm. once, I was in the 11th grade, and uh, we're all athletes, and, and uh, at the high school I went to, if you played on a sports team during that particular sports season, the athletes would get a free lunch. So if you were on the football team during the football season, you got free lunch. If you oh, you can best, eat. 
No, it was just you'd go through once. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it wasn't <laughs> what you could eat. Uh, if you played basketball, you got free lunch during basketball season. If you played baseball, track, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so I was a, a two-sport athlete. I played football and ran track. And um, in my junior year, and Ricky was on the track team, and um, we're all in the caf- cafeteria gobbling down these lunches and you know, having a good time. And Ricky's sitting there, and uh, he's not eating lunch. And uh, somebody says, hey, man, what's the matter? Where's your lunch? He says, oh, I'm fasting. Um. So you what? He says, yeah, I'm fasting. Now, where I grew up, the community was overwhelmingly Baptist. There were a few... African Methodist Episcopals and maybe a handful of Methodists but principally it was Baptist and a sprinkling of AME but none of those groups are fasters <laughs> uh, and so we said you're fasting what, what What are you talking about he says well I'm a Baha'i now we say you what he says yeah I'm a Baha'i he says, uh, Christ has returned, and his name is Baha'u'llah. And we said, oh, man, this dude has gone off the deep end. <laughs> I mean, he's been drinking too much of that lead whiskey, man. It, is, it has rocked his mind. He's gone. I mean, seriously, we were seriously, we thought he had You really were up. concerned. Yeah. I mean, oh. we said, he's, he's tripping. Uh, and we had known people who uh, actually... Uh, who had consumed enough of that bootleg whiskey, which was uh, filtered through the way they filtered bootleg in those days was through car radiators. Mm. And car radiators at that time had lead cores in them. So (laughs) people drinking that stuff would actually get lead poisoning over a period of time, you know, develop tremors and shakes, and their minds would, you know, uh, vacate. Mm -hmm. So... Ricky, you know, we said, geez, man, lead's got him. Lead, lead's got Rick, man. So we said, we were confirming to each other, that's why I don't drink nothing but wine anymore. You know, <laughs> I don't drink that lead. We thought he, we, really, we thought he had slept. Yeah. And um, so then he starts talking about Baha'u'llah. And then we noticed Rick's behavior unexplicably changed. And uh, first thing was, he's walking away from fights. Mm. And that's a serious thing, man, mm. <laughs> where we live. Okay. I mean, that your rep was what you had, you right. know. But then Ricky was one of the few people, he was a very resourceful guy who was an excellent mechanic. And Rick literally could almost put together a car. And, of course... Not to mention, you know, he would rob or have us rob other cars to put together his car. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, uh, taking a midnight piece from here, a midnight piece from there, you know. But uh, so Rick was one of the few people who had an automobile at that time that was exclusively his to be used. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he should say, well, so after he became a Baha'i, he started telling us, you got to come to a Baha'i fireside. And we said, no, nah, man, you know, we can't do it. But Rick was our primary. There were two Rickies, actually, Ricky Abercrombie and Rich, Ricky Cooper, and both of them had cars. 
Ricky Abercrombie had his car the rough way by making his car from other people's cars right. <laughs> in terms of getting wheels and everything, you know, uh-huh. uh, tires. And, and, and the other Ricky, Ricky Cooper, who actually was from a upper-middle-class family, Ricky's father was a dentist, so Ricky had a real car. But those were, so between the two Rickies, they were our mode of transportation. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ricky Abercrombie trying to get us to these firesides, but he was our way to all of our social events, you know, dances and stuff, so our parties. And so when we say, hey, Rick, you going you gonna to hook us up, drive us to the party on Saturday or Friday, whatever, he said, well, no, you know, if I'll drive you guys to the party if you go to the fireside. <laughs> so he said, you know. So a couple of times, you know, he took us to the party, and then it was time to go to the fireside. He said, oh, man, Rick, you know, my mama said I can't come out, you know. He said, what are you talking about, you know? Any other time, you sneak out, you know? So, <laughs> so he knew we were doing, pulling the okey-doke on him, right. you know? So he, he uh, said, well, you know, I can't, I can't be taking the guys to parties, man. Y'all, you know, you guys are, uh, are bailing out on me when it's time to go to fire. So finally he nailed us. We said, okay. Well, so we jumped in his car, man, and we were driving to this fireside. And we noticed that we were going into the white section of town. Hmm. And uh, this is, I remind you, this is 63, 64, and these are dangerous times, man. Right. People were just without any provocation, violent and, and vile and evil. Mm-hmm. And um, you could literally be killed, shot, jailed, or whatever for being in a white community after dark. Mm-hmm. So here we are riding in this, we say, Rick, where the hell are you going, man? And uh, he says, we're going to the fireside. And I said, no, nah, man, this is a white neighborhood. We're going to get shot over here. So here we are. He's right. He says, no, it's all right. We're going over to my friends. You ain't got no friends over here. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. So uh, here we are deep in the heart, and it's an upper-class white neighborhood, which is all the worse. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, so we I'm trying to decide, well, I can't get out of the car because I'm in the right neighborhood. Right. can't do that. So all we can do is slide down in the car and try to stay up. <laughs> so we finally get to this, this house. Mm-hmm. I remember, we'll never forget, five Overbrook Circle. <laughs> we pull up, and this guy comes out, this white guy. He says, Rick, is that you? And Rick says, yeah, it's me, Dick. He says, well, come on in. He says, he says well, oh, you're by yourself, because we were all down in the car hiding. <laughs> you know? There were about five of us, mm. or six, probably six of us, uh-huh. as I think about it. Anyway, so we, I'm trying to decide, am I going to go in these people's house or I'm going to stay in the car? Well, it's safer to get out and go in the house, because <laughs> it's this guy's house. So we jump out of the car, and we go up to this house, and... Uh, we go inside, and lo and behold, there's an integrated group of people sitting in the living room. This is my first literal social interaction in a social setting with white people. And, and, and how old are you? I'm 17 years old mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm nervous, but then I look around the room, and there's Miss Heard. Mm-hmm. And uh, Miss Heard was head of our 
senior missionary society at the church that I went to. I'm trying to figure what is Miss Heard doing here? But I was glad to see her. Sure. You know, I said, oh, uh, nice brown face that I know. Right. So I found out later that what Junie Faley had actually been doing is quietly extending friendship to black women, and she would uh, invite them into her home for tea. And they would have these little teas, and she would go to their house, and they would come to her house, and then she, then she was inviting them to these firesides, to these to these meetings. So that was my first, uh, you know, Baha'i meeting. And, and, and uh, that whole meeting, I really didn't listen very much to what the Baha'i message was because I was still trying to get my mental arms around the fact that I'm sitting in a room with a group of white folks that, and we're social and they're treating me with respect. And I mean, it's just, but I'm just taking in this whole scene. Yeah. So that was that was my uh, first encounter socially with whites. So what did you tell Ricky when you got back in the car and headed home? Well, no, we were, you know, we were saying, wow, man, this is far out, man. So, you know. So he was, he was no longer uh, polluted with lead booze. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, we knew, yeah, we knew he was, you know, uh, that uh, there was something else going on, mm-hmm. and um, we sort of begin to sense that just because of his behavior, I mm-hmm. mean, because he, he wasn't drinking. I mean, he wouldn't even drink wine with us, mm-hmm. you know. So we said, "Oh man!" And uh, you know, we we'd say, "I mean, because one of the ways you you would stay in Rick's favor is, you know, uh, if you spotted a car somewhere, well, we knew we could get the tires." He'd say, "Okay, we know, you know, go over on uh, Sullivan Street. I saw a car over there. You know, we'll go back tonight, get the tires, or get whatever we need off of it." But uh, he wasn't even into, you know, he would he, say, Rick, I know where we can get some nice hubcaps, man. he say, no, nah, I'm all right. You know, he just, well, he, so, so all these behavioral changes, you know. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that was, that was, uh, and then after, you know, afterwards, uh, we didn't talk too much about it. We just sort of talked about it among ourselves, but not with him, mm-hmm. you know. That was interesting, those people. Yeah, that guy, he was a doctor, too, man. I mean, his wife was a doctor. He was a lawyer, yeah. And um, then at about that same time, actually, these people, their reputation in the city of Greenville had begun to have an impact in the community, both the black and white community, principally because of their insistence on trying to live lives that gave equity and respect and fairness to black people. Uh, now, was there any backlash from uh, white society because of this effort to... Yeah, well, there were, there were you know, there was uh, a tremendous amount of isolation, after, particularly after I got to know them later on. But, mm-hmm. I mean, they some really... And then my oldest sister, who actually knew more than I did about them because she was in a whole certain other sort of circumstances. But one of in terms of knowing about these people. She's seven years older than me, so that was a whole other information base and experiential base that I wasn't aware of uh, with regard to the Benson family. But uh, one of the things was that, and I found this out actually later through, I mean much later through a situation where I was talking to uh, the chair of the, National NAACP, Dr. Dr. Bill Gibson, who actually was, was from Greenville as well, and 
and uh, he knew the Bensons, and, and he told me the story of how when he came to Greenville from Darlington, South Carolina, as a young black dentist, and uh, he uh, there was a black professional building where all the black lawyers and dentists and doctors were. You had to be in that building. You couldn't be anyplace else. And first thing he said, he was he really sure. He says, "Yeah." So this guy, old Dick Benson. This was much later when I was actually an adult, but. He says, yeah, he says, you know, he tried to run an office in the black professional building. <laughs> the guy who owned the building was a black guy, wouldn't do it because he was afraid. He wouldn't, mm-hmm. he, he didn't want to, he didn't want to rent an office of this white guy, right? right? So then he said, and then later on, uh, he was actually built, Dr. Gibson was relating this story to me out of his respect for, for, uh, them as, as, as people and, and, sure. and his respect for them as Baha'is and he was relating to he says you know when I first moved into Greenville as a young dentist he said uh, they used to have uh, what was a Greenville professional association and uh, Dick and Joy Dick was a, an attorney and she was a doctor and I think they both were University of Michigan people and they had a young family of three boys and then later a girl little Marzi but Dick, when they moved into Greenville, the uh, white community, the Greenville Professional Association, invited them to join the Professional Association. I mean, he had two prime potential members, an attorney and a, and a medical doctor. And so they joined, and then uh, the Greenville Professional Association said, we'd they wanted to expand the membership. It says, if you know any professionals, you know, bring them, and because we're trying to grow our member base. And so, Dick Benson had met Doc Gibson when he tried to get it to run an office in that professional building. And so, he called Doctor Gibson and said, "Hey, they have a drive with the Greenville Professional Association, uh, and I want to take you and sponsor you as a member, right?" Mm-hmm. I mean, now this was pre sixty four. This was like ninety two or something, or even sixty one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's pretty courageous. Yeah. So, so Dick takes uh, and 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 uh, Doc Gibson, who was a a real lion of a, a civil rights guy. Man, he was he was game. He was ready to go, baby. So, mm-hmm. so they go to the meeting, right? Mm-hmm. Well, not only did they not let. Doc Gibson in, they kicked Dick and Joy out. <laughs> they immediately got got their memberships revoked. That was, I mean, that was, uh, you had to, that kind of stuff got your attention. And um, I remember uh, actually Dick defended us, me and a group of my buddies, as we got into this knockdown brawl on Main Street with some white kids. Actually, this was after. I wasn't a Baha'i at the time. I was a senior just before I was graduating from high school. And uh, this was these were tense times. And uh, some kids, uh, white kids from Greenville Senior High, started literally started an altercation. And while there was a lot of passive resistance, you know, and, and uh, civil disobedience and nonviolent, I should say nonviolent civil disobedience, and my older sisters were both very much in the heart of that, but I, I just I didn't have the courage. I couldn't do it. 
so when people gave me and my boys a hard time, it was we'd go to Knuckle City. I mean, it was just we we we, yeah. we, we, had, we didn't we couldn't appreciate you know um, right. the nonviolence aspect of it, which is a very powerful and of course is the thing that that turned the tide. But just we didn't. I didn't have the personal. I didn't have the gut. I couldn't do it. Mm. And so I think these kids, these white kids, mistook us for passive resistors when they started this altercation in front of Woolworths. And uh, it was the wrong group. Mm. So it turned into quite a slugfest. And we wound up in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they didn't. Uh, and then Dick Benson, whom I didn't really know at the time, but one of my classmates, a buddy of mine, Fred Knuckles, his sister or somebody somehow knew about the Bensons and asked him to be our attorney, which he did and was. And um, he got us, he got, actually got us off hmm. for we didn't get fined or jailed. We were jailed that that night and spent the night in jail and then our parents came and got us but when we went to trial the charges were dropped and I remember my mother was totally awed because she says in that attorney he wouldn't take a nickel he wouldn't take a nickel from us Uh, he said he can't make money off of trials that are unfair or something to that effect Mm. so anyway these are extraordinary people who, who were pretty much living their conviction, and it, and, it, and it did have an impact, and it did get people's attention. It got my attention uh, in, in some ways, in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. So, what happened after the first meeting? Well, you know, eventually over time, we got suckered into another meeting, <laughs> you know, because uh, it was time to, you know, he took us to two or three parties, and then, um, you know, okay, it's time to go to another fireside. Then off and on, because Rick was a very likable guy, so you you didn't mind hanging with Rick, you know. What I mean, because he was he was a fun guy. Mm-hmm. It still is. Uh, so off and on, I went to behind meetings, started meeting some interesting people, and but just wasn't really uh, very cautious, but really interested in the 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 whole uh, oneness of mankind aspect of it, and didn't pay a lot of attention to the force behind the actuality of people trying to uh, incorporate it into their personal lives until much later when I actually graduated high school and just graduated high school and and a group of Baha'i youth came down to Greenville on a service project, a youth service project, and they were integrated group of kids, some of whom have become fast and firm, lifelong friends. I was just with one, Dr. Richard Thomas, last week down in Florida at a, at a meeting. But the uh, they came down to on a service project in Greenville to work with uh, the local communities to tutor young kids to prepare to integrate the schools the public schools in the fall of 1964. And uh, Greenville adopted an integration plan that was 
called a gradual plan, which means that they started at first grade and then uh, a graduated plan. And every two years, every other year, they would add two grades. So their projected plan was like in 10 years we'll have or eight years or something, they'll have all of the public schools integrated. But for that first year, for kids who are going to enter first grade, a lot of the uh, churches and ours, the church that I was a member of in particular, had tutoring sessions for the for the kids, you know, getting them prepared to to go into these integrated white schools because they weren't sending principally white kids to black schools. <laughs> right. So uh, these young people came down to uh, help tutor these kids, and um, I can remember I was taken by the fact that there was this integrated group of kids many of whom were around my age, some older, uh, maybe one or two my age, but most of them were three, four years old because they were college students, uh, junior, seniors in college. And I was taken by the active integration of the group. I mean, just the way that the, the, they interacted with a total air of equity between them. And I said, hmm, this is interesting. And then... Uh, Richard Thomas, who was actually my mentor, Richard was a young ex-Marine who, uh, and a, a championship boxer, actually, yeah. uh, who was a real scholar. And this guy, I mean, he looked the whole scholar role. He, and to this day, he was, he, he's, he's, Rich, Richard's, I don't know how, I used to say, Richard, how did you ever box? I mean, his his vision is zero. His his glasses are about an inch thick, <laughs> and they were thin too as well. Uh, but he was he was also a martial arts guy. But but incredible. He was a, he was a little guy. He wasn't a big guy, but he was telling us about black history and ancient African civilizations, and we'd never heard this stuff before. Yeah. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he was telling us about the great universities at Timbuktu and Cordova, and it's just fascinating stuff. And oh, he'd hold little sessions over in the segregated library on Macby Avenue, and we'd go in there and get, have black history class. I mean, but it was just, so we were just, this was a whole new giddy experience. And it was, uh, so I remember asking my minister, you know, say, well, what about, what about these Baha'is who are here? You know, because they were we were doing this in our church, and he said, "Well, you know, they're 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 they're, they're good people." He says, "But you got to watch them." You know, so I took you got to watch them as being hmm, there's really a chink in their armor. Mm-hmm. So socially, I got to know these young people and started going to firesides with them because I liked it. I liked them, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and um, but I would go to these firesides with the intent. Because at that time I knew clearly that the the claim was that Baha'u'llah was the glory of God, uh, as they described him to me, and that he was the return of the Spirit of Christ. That uh, I came from a long, long line of Baptist ministers. In fact, my great grandfather built what is still the oldest, still standing Black Baptist church in the state of South Carolina. It's uh, Christian Hope down in Ware Shoals which he literally built, he and his um, good friend, Mr. Ballantyne, they actually built this church with their own hands. They, they were stonemasons. 
and uh, this church was built in 1860. And um, it wasn't the first church, but it's the oldest that still stands. Mm. But anyway, so I'm, I'm, even though I had a, a life on the edge, I came from a wonderful family, I, I was, I did have a life on the edge and was into a lot of stuff, but I knew certain how should I say, biblically related things. I mean, I was well grounded in the fundamentalist uh, understanding of the Bible and, and uh, scripture and all those things. And I mean, there were things that in my generation, you you know, you when you were six, you recited the books of the Bible in order by heart. I mean, that's mm. just a part of your, like, learning your ABCs. Mm-hmm. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judge, Ruth, Samuel, and you just go all the way through. I mean, that's stuff that you learned, you know. Right. So when people start talking about Baha'u'llah, I say, well, i got to go. i got to prove them wrong. Mm. So I would go to these Baha'i firesides, and my intent was to disprove them. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is not true. Uh, and one of the first things I learned, and incidentally, one of, my, one of the people I met who had a tremendous influence on my Baha'i life was Ricky's father, who actually became a Baha'i, principally because of Ricky's change in behavior. But Papa Jake, as we called him, <clears throat> was a very well-respected man in Greenville, uh, and he was the chief steward of, at uh, Allen Temple, which was, um, no, not at, at uh, Tabernacle Baptist, and which is one of the other really large black churches in he investigated the Baha'i faith, and in fact, he was taught the Baha'i faith by Eulalia Bobo, who was a prominent black Baha'i. She was the sister of the boxer, Joe Lewis, and Eulalia would go on these travel teaching circuits through the South to meet uh, and teach principally African Americans, and, and uh, not a lot of whites, because most whites wouldn't come to hear a black person speak. So, <laughs> But she had come... And uh, after Rick had become a Baha'i, his father had to take a serious look at him just because of the profound impact that he had on his behavior and his life. And Eulalia, on one of her visits, and she was an extraordinary Bible scholar. She was a psychologist, but she was a woman deeply steeped in the Bible by biblical scripture. And so they sat and went through the Bible and did the analysis, and Papa Jake, said, this is true. Hmm. Uh, so he became a Baha'i, and he immediately went to Tabernacle and stood up on the first Sunday, on Communion Sunday, and made an announcement that he was residing as chief steward. Wow. And um, he said, and I have to resign because Christ has returned, and his name is Baha'u'llah. Hmm. And he urged members to investigate the Baha'i faith. Of course, that news went like wildfire through the city of Greenville. I mean, literally, I can remember my grandmother talking to my great-aunt, saying, Oh, Lord, you know that Charles Abercrombie, they done, that Baha'i thing, they got him in that mess, too. They got him, too. He, that, he resigned from the stewardship. It was, it was far out, man. This was, <laughs> but anyway. Um, but before, I'm really but, curious how Ricky, if his parents didn't investigate. How, how did Ricky get involved in, in the Baha'i faith? You know, I only know that Rick knew somehow he had met 
Junie Faley, and I just I don't know the details of it, mm. of how he, you know, took it from there. I don't, yeah. And what I found out later was that also she'd gone to many churches. It wasn't mm-hmm. just my church. And that's yeah. the reason she only appeared every five or six weeks is because of those other Sundays she would go. <laughs> <laughs> she was going to other church. <laughs> so, but anyway, I'm yeah. not sure how uh, Rick got initially connected with the Baha'i faith. Yeah. Um, okay, so you um, you were influenced by these folks and but the, I the youth that the, came down. But I should no, I should go and but I, my intent was to disprove it. And, yeah. Uh, then Papa Jake, who was also an expert Bible scholar, you know, he he would very patiently say, "Well, you know." The Bible is both literal uh, and figurative, and um, you have to really look at it and read Scripture in that way. And he go through and patiently explain things. And I mean, because I was a fund, I was out of a fundamentalist teaching, and I'd say stuff. Well, you know, Christ ain't returned because when Christ returned, it says the dead would get out of their sepulchres and walk. And I don't see any dead people coming out of the graveyard. You know, that was. And they said, well, you know, he pointed out the story of Jesus uh, on one of his teaching visits when he bade the man to follow him. And the the response was the man gave Jesus, uh, gave Christ an excuse that he had to go bury his father, that he couldn't take up and follow Christ because he had to go and bury his father. And Christ said, let the dead bury the dead. And so Papa Jake said, obviously Jesus wasn't talking to a dead man. I mean, he was saying that you're spiritually dead if you turn away from me and go. So the dead that will spit out of their sepulchres, there are people who are spiritually dead who will rise. He says, I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. And so, well, I can understand that. Mm-hmm. And there's just so many other things. Uh, I guess one of the most profound things that from a Christian, or my point of view as a fundamental Christian, was that the scripture that says he will come as a thief in the night. And Papa Jake pointed out, you know, says, and he was such a wonderful guy, and old, and he, a spinner of tales and a great storyteller and an and orator. And he said, yeah, boy, he says, uh, how's, a, how's a thief come in the night? You don't know he's been there till he's gone. Mm. Things have changed. Things are missing. You know that he was there, but you don't see him. He doesn't come and go. He said, that's what Baha'u'llah did. He said, he's come and he's spiritually revitalized the world. And he's gone. But he's imprinted the whole civilization the whole world and so I started to read and, and, and you know and all things started looking at uh, scripture and there are many sheep that are not of this fold and you know the day of the one fold and the one shepherd and I will gather them all into my own I mean just I'm paraphrasing a lot of things but mm-hmm. essentially explaining the oneness of religion and that there are many sheep obviously meaning God-fearing good people who are not of this fold. They're good people who are not Christians. But then there will come the day of the one fold and the one shepherd. And, of course, Baha'u'llah has 
come to unite mankind, to bring the unity of religion, to reiterate the unity and the oneness of God that all the messengers have proclaimed, and uh, to clarify the succession of manifestations that have come and that they're all one and the same. When you say manifestations, you're referring to the prophet founders of the, the, the great the, religions. Yeah, the prophets of God, and, and, and the uh, yeah, that's a sort of a, a Baha'i speak when you say manifestation. But those who manifest these revelators who uh, imbue all of the qualities of God, and the analogy is used, of course, of the purely polished mirror. If you hold a purely polished mirror to the sun the intensity and the brightness of light is ever, to our eyes, as powerful as that of the sun. Though it is not the sun, it's but a reflection of the sun. And that's who these manifestations are. They manifest all the qualities and attributes of God. But they are one, just as the same sun rises and sets every day. We call days different names. But it is the same light, the same that powers and warms us, and that's true with the manifestations, these revelators of God's will to mankind. And that's why they all talk about, they all praise the person or the revelator uh, who came before them. I mean, Christ praised the works of Moses, and they always talk about someone who's coming after them. Prince of Peace, the Son of Truth, when he comes in the glory of his Father, which, again, Baha'u'llah, means glory of God. But it's not just only true with Christianity, it's true with the other religions, because they are manifestations of the same Spirit. And subsequently, they are all awaiting a promised one, whether it's the fifth Buddha, or the Shah Baram, or the Mahdi, they're all looking for this promised one, and they're all looking for the same one, because religion is one. But that's a whole... That's something that, that uh, people should investigate, and I guess that's the thing that actually led me to a recognition of Baha'u'llah, the principle of the independent investigation of truth. Baha'u'llah says that uh, we should see through our own eyes and not through the eyes of others. That every individual has the capacity to know and understand truth. We all have our own individual little keys that fit, but we have to investigate and discover for ourselves, but not through the eyes of someone else. We have to suspend all of the superstition and all of the the um, extraneous matter that has been attached to religion over the centuries. So, yeah. anyway. So, how old were you when you became a Baha'i? I was 18. Mm-hmm. Yep, that was 42 years ago. <laughs> Almost 43. Mm-hmm. I, so I bet some of you listeners are saying, whoa, <laughs> This guy's ancient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Once you became a Baha'i, how did 
it end up changing the direction of your life? Well, essentially, it affected the direction of my life in that it affirmed sort of an innate longing that I've always had to be of assistance to someone, to contribute something to society. And in the Baha'i teachings, um, Baha'u'llah says that work done in the spirit of service is worshiping God. And that was very liberating for me in that knowing whatever I did or wound up doing, if I did it with a sense of service, that I would be worshiping, that I don't have to go to church, I don't have to do any of those things. All I have to do is be of service uh, in whichever situation I would find myself in. Uh, whether it was uh, working on the auto assembly line, which I did for a while at GM Trucking Coach way back when I was a young guy, or uh, being a medic in Vietnam and serving people through trying to help them through being a school principal or through being a filmmaker or through being any of those things, just uh, doing it with a sense of trying to be of service and I think that's one of the things that has encouraged my life and shaped it in knowing that doing good is not only personal rewarding, but that it's in effect doing what I was created to do as a human being. So that's that's what I that's one of my big takeaways from Baha'i, and so that drives my life to be of service. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. William Smith a Baha'i and Executive Director of the Center for Diversity in the Communication Industries at Emerson College. I'll invite Dr. Smith for another interview so he can tell us of his many endeavors after finishing high school. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.